Hey, this is Dave Pryor. Welcome to Leading Agile Sound Notes. Today, Dave Nicolette is back to save my butt from a question I couldn't figure out what to do with. So, Dave, thank you very much for sparing some time in your day. Well, I haven't saved you yet. We're just yeah, but you will. I have no fear. Um, so, I'm going to play a question from a student that I got in class in a minute. But before we get into that, Dave, could you just give the folks a little bit, kind of like an overview of your background? Because you have one of the shortest bios on the company website, and you've been doing this longer than almost anybody on the company website. <laughs> well, that's probably why it's a short bio. I mean, what's the point of listing everything you ever did? I've been involved with software since 1977, and I still enjoy it. And that's it. That's the whole show. Okay. <laughs> All right. I was just noting, I'm like, so you've been doing this since the Sex Pistols were touring the United States, which I think is pretty cool. <laughs> to kind of set the range of time. All right, so I did a class last week, a CSM and a CSPO class, a private class, and I had a lot of people that were heavily involved with data. So I'm going to read two things and then I'll play the recording. So the first thing, one of the things I have the students in class do is write up acceptance criteria. And one of the acceptance criteria was learn how to apply Scrum to data factory. And then later on when they had to write user stories, I got as a data architect, I want to learn how Scrum applies to Data Factory so I can be part of the successful dev team. And there's a lot of complications that came up during the class, but then at the end, one of the students was kind enough to let me record him explaining the project he was working on. So I'm going to play that recording now, and then we're going to let Mr. Nicolette share his wisdom and help me figure out what I should have been saying in this class. So, well, don't oversell my wisdom. We'll see what <laughs> we can figure out. You got more than me, my friend. All right, here's the recording. So the, the, the project that, we are, that we're on is uh, we're replacing our enterprise data warehouse, which sits on, on legacy DB2 databases. So we have, in, uh, in the enterprise data warehouse, we have, it's really consists of tables, and we uh, maybe hundreds of tables, and each of those tables have columns, which are attributes. So there's thousands of attributes within these hundreds of tables, and our job is to pick up those attributes and recreate them in the new data platform. But this stuff is 20 years old. We don't even have documentation. We don't know the logic. We don't know how they were created. We don't know what transformation they go through. So we either have to start from net new requirements at the attribute level, that's thousands of requirements, or we have to reverse engineer COBOL code or ab initio code to try to figure out how this thing came into existence. Well, we're working with our line of business and they don't even know what they're using and not using because they don't know their queries, they don't know what's in the reports they're using. So we have this monster over the next three to you know four years, we have to turn off and stand up and Hadoop and Teradata. So I think that. And how do you use Scrum? Oh yeah, so we're using, yeah. So I have a product backlog right now that we just started with 10,000 product backlog items because at the attribute level, we have a, a backlog item it represents a phase of the life cycle. So each, and at high level, we have up between uh, eight and 12 backlog items per attribute. And we have thousands of attributes. <laughs> so, you know, yeah, just on the first pass, I have, you know, we 9,000 backlog items for six families or tables when I have another 20 to go. So we could end up with Six, I don't know, five thousand. These are these are just the tables and attributes that we see people using right now. Yeah, that's right? like there's a whole nother layer to this as well. That's hard to talk about. 
which is downstream consumption, which is, so we're talking about direct access to these tables, but there's also another layer equally important of these tables are also non-human IDs are generating extracts to feed downstream systems that are black boxes. And there's hundreds of those. And so we have to, again, there's no, there's no, there's no, there's no blueprints or schematics on how this stuff was created. So we have to talk to the business, figure out really what they're using, how they use it. If they really need it today, is it right? Or is it bad data? Or we have to go reverse engineer code and it's just a, you know. Okay. So that was the recording. And now you've heard, you know, kind of the background of this. Um, And Dave actually prepared a whole lot of stuff, which we're going to try to walk through. But let's start out. At a very basic level, do you think that Scrum is a good fit for this kind of project or this kind of work? Well, I think that in the Agile world, we have a good handful of robust methods that we can apply. And Scrum is good when you have a backlog of features that you want to possibly develop. They're all options, really. They're not, it's not requirements. But in this kind of environment, it's a data factory sort of thing the shape of the work is not really like that. It's more like a a series of things to do that just uh, new things come in and you keep doing them. You know, it's like a pipeline of stuff coming through. Right. So I'm not sure Scrum would be a really good fit there. You could force it to kind of work, but you'd you'd be creating extra work for yourself to manage the sprints and all of that stuff and the ceremonies and whatnot. And you don't really need the time box, right? I mean, that's an artificial construct anyway. It's kind of an artificial construct. Uh, It can be applicable when you have this backlog of features that can help you, help you make sure that you get things done. Uh, But for this kind of work, it's more like a continuous flow of work. So I would would lean toward a process that's based on that, that, on continuous flow rather than on time boxes. And, you know, the popular one now is Kanban. So you could okay. use something like Kanban, or it could be kind of a, a subset of Kanban, a simplified version. Well, can I ask you a question about the, the, the choice of Kanban? Yeah. It makes sense to me from a flow perspective, but I guess when I think about Kanban, I think about it as a way, and maybe maybe that I'm mistaken in the way that I'm thinking about it, but to me, it's it provides this, opportunity to get like this meta level understanding of choices we're making, why we're making them, how we're making them, where are we adding waste, how can we remove it? All around the idea of optimizing flow. But I'm assuming with a project like this that you kind of studying and finding ways to remove those, you know, delay points, that's is that I'm thinking that's not going to be part of it so much because everything's just got to follow the same process, right? Oh well I think that that will be part of it. Okay. I mean, if we approach this, well, you remember in the recording what what the guy was talking about, they're thinking about the requirements as the data attributes. Yeah. Unless I misunderstood what he meant, it sounds like they're thinking, well, we have 10,000 data attributes and we're going to grab eight of them at a time and migrate them to Teradata and Hadoop. Right. Well, to me, that doesn't, that doesn't map to any kind of uh, user experience or use case. So the way I might approach it is to find out which of the consumers of this uh, facility of the data factory is most important to the business and get them migrated first. So let's say, well, it's a bank. I understand it's a bank. I don't know what it is, but 
Well, let's, say, let's say I have an asset management group. Okay. And they decide, well, for our bank, asset management is the big thing. You know, maybe for the bank down the street, it's credit cards or commercial banking or something. But for us, it's asset management. And our asset management group has 20 queries that run in production that go against this data, the data warehouse. And they do stuff with that. We don't know what they do. Okay. So my first step then might be go work with that group. Go to the asset management group and see what are you guys doing with this data? And so do you start with the queries then? Is that, are they sort of like the replacements for user stories? Well, I, was, I start with the users, the user group there. Okay. In, this, in this example, the asset management group, or it could be something else. Because okay. they don't have thousands of requirements. Right. If you think about what a bank does, it does, I don't know, seven or eight different things. And there's some complexity, of course, under the covers. But, you know, they make loans. Um, they manage checking accounts. They do stuff like that. Those are the things. It's not each data attribute that's a thing. So I think that right from the get-go, they don't have as many unique requirements as they think. Because a lot of these queries are going to pull the same data elements anyway. Okay. So there's a lot of overlap, probably. I'm guessing because I haven't seen Well, and this was, this was a concern for them too because they don't have a lot of clarity on, you know, what the requirement, one, what the requirements for as they're looking at each attribute are, but who consumes this stuff down the, down the stream, they, they don't really know. Right, they don't know. And that's very common in big organizations. There's a lot of fear about changing any application or changing any data format or deleting anything. Right. Because nobody really knows what the impact is going to be. And that's unfortunate, but it's kind of normal. And that's got to be part of their plan to figure that out. They can't just start throwing the attributes across from DB2 to Teradata, because at the end of that, they would still have the same system. You know, so they've not improved anything. It's just that the data lives in a different repository now. The, the project manager part of my brain is wanting to set up some kind of like risk register or some like recovery process or some way of at least calling out like these are the ones that are really scary and, and are probably consumed by lots of people we can't see or have a mm -hmm. lot of stuff we don't understand. Would that make sense? From, like, from that your makes sense, yeah. Uh, but I don't think we can start by looking at the data elements, the attributes, and decide which ones are risky. Okay. So I think we have to start with who's using them. What are they doing with this? Because I think what we're going to find out, this is a 20-plus-year-old system. If we went to that asset management group and they say, well, we've got these, or we discover that they have what, 20 queries going, we might find out that eight of those are dead ends anyway. They're obsolete. They're still in production, but nobody needs them. And we might also find out that there's a little bit of shadow IT going on. Because in these big companies, it's really expensive and time-consuming to engage the IT department. So a lot of the business units just don't do it. Yeah, they get their own people. Yeah, they figure out how to get their work done somehow. And they may have figured out that by using such and such a query, they can get some data out that they can put into Excel and play with it. And then maybe they enter some of those values into a CICS application and it crunches some numbers. And then they take some of that output and put it into some other tool like Cognos. And eventually they get what they need. 
So yeah. if the, go ahead. Well, if the data migration project is, analyzes what this user group is doing, yeah, they'll see, well, look, you guys, why don't we, we'll add, we can get rid of eight old queries. We can add three new ones that get you closer to what you really need. And you can maybe get rid of that spreadsheet thing. And now we're going to Teradata and Hadoop. You're not going to need Cognos. We can use the data analytics features of the new okay. data platform for that. So we, we're simplifying their world a little. And the thing with the CICS application, why don't we modify that? And they'll say, well, because it takes two years to get anything out of the IT department. <laughs> now we're going to have <laughs> cross-functional teams, right? So we can create a team that knows the data warehouse, yeah. that knows CICS, and we can connect these applications. So you All see right. that kind of shadow IT thing then becomes unnecessary. So that would be a good value. Well, okay, now I have two questions to ask you. I had okay. one, but you just gave me another one. But I'll come to the shadow IT thing in a second. So you, you've seen the movie Caddyshack, right? Yeah. Okay. So the part where Carl Spackler puts the hose into the gopher hole, and he cranks it up all the way. He's going to flood the gopher. And, and the water just starts sprouting up from all the gopher holes on the Bushwood golf course. Mm -hmm. Is there a way that you could do that with the data where they could just like throw some flag or put some chunk in there and then like everything that uses that downstream is going to just explode and they'll be able to see all the places. And I, I don't know enough about data to ask this question. So, I mean, oh, yeah, you could certainly do that. Okay. But it wouldn't be very pretty. Okay, but it would be, and it probably, especially if there's external customers, it would be kind of ugly, but it would be a way to, to figure out where the consumers were. If you really wanted to, to do it that way, because what I'm thinking is we turn something off. Okay. See who complains. Okay. That's <laughs> kind of risky. Maybe that's less destructive than what I would suggest. That's pretty, disrupt pretty disruptive. Yeah. 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 Okay. So I'll go back to if we find the find a user group that we can start with. Yeah, we get that. That's a vertical slice, then, right? And that's we're that's, not trying to convert every all the data and then figure out what to do with it. That's horizontal. The vertical thing is, well, we'll get asset management going, and then we'll get collateral sales from the loan department going, or whoever else uses this. And little by little, we'll learn which attributes are common and which ones need to be in Teradata, which ones need to be in Hadoop. Um, and that's another question I have. I don't know why they chose both products. There must be some specific functionality they need. Yeah, but in yeah. any case, that's another wrinkle because they're going from one data store, DB2, two. to two data stores. So there must be a reason. Okay. So let me figure out what the reasons are and, and help them with that. Well, back to the vertical slice thing. Yeah. And getting towards that. So instead of, like what I was teaching them in class was you prioritize, you know, all these features in the backlog or PBIs based on value to the customer. And what we're talking about is prioritizing the groups or the user groups based on our, their understanding of which one is the most valuable or most important, or maybe even least risky just to get started. Mm -hmm. um, their, their backlog then is going to be user groups. Yeah, it would be. And that would be like ethics, you know, in leading agile yeah. terms. Those would be okay. epic. Okay. So then each of these user groups, what you would do to kind of dig down on that epic is you'd come up with the list of queries, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And start to test those or migrate those one by one. Yeah. And you said the right word because 
there we're getting into some of these agile technical practices, right? How do you adapt those? Yeah. Because they're not writing application code. They're writing some kind of scripts or some kind of rules or something like that. It's moving stuff, yeah. Yeah, so what you'd want to do is figure out what the data structure looks like in the target um, backend and write some kind of executable thing that will verify that. And then you see that fail. That's just like TDD, only it's not code. Right. Right. So you see that fail. Yes, we don't have this data structure in place yet. So then when you start migrating some of the attributes, you can see when that turns green, when that passes, you're done with that piece. That's your done criteria. Okay. So it doesn't have to be painful. It it sounds like they have a lot of stuff, but it's, it's probably the same kind of thing over and over again, like the same pattern again and again. Okay, so this brings me to another question that I'm going to ask, and I have a feeling I know what your answer is, and I think it's kind of a sophomore question, but I'm going to ask anyway. Um, When I have had work to do, I mean, even if it's something as simple as copying my own files, like my MP3 files from a dying hard drive into a new one, and I decide, well, I'm going to clean it up while I copy it, so I'm going to make sure all the tags are right, all the metadata is right, like all that stuff, and I do that for a while, and I'm very diligent about it, but then at a certain point, I'm like, screw it. And I just drag everything in because I just can't be bothered anymore. And I don't care that half the records are just named by the year they were created or whatever. Um, does that, I mean, with work, if you're, if when you've had to do work like this, that was fairly repetitive. How do you maintain that focus? Like, how do you not just go screw it? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I know what you mean. But you know how we work with, with teams, right? We, we ask them to create a definition of ready and a definition yeah. of DOM and all that kind of stuff. And here, if we're using something like Kanban, we can use the explicit policies for that or exit criteria in some tools, it's called that. So that gives you some guidance, like a checklist to follow. Okay. So, so you, you just have to be disciplined in your practice. Or just say, screw it. You know, you, you still have to meet all the acceptance criteria, meet the definition of done. Okay. So do you think that that is a role? I mean, I know that in Kanban, we're not going to have specific roles, but is that something that you would entrust to the whole team? Or do you think that the team would be possibly like these are these folks are moving from waterfall over to agile so they're just getting their feet wet with this and there's a big a lot of questions about accountability and stuff like that um and not accountability in a positive way accountability more like in a you know who am i going to point at Mm, Um, yeah would it make sense to ask somebody to be kind of the i don't know i'm thinking of I forget the idris alba on the rainbow bridge like is there somebody who should be kind of the watcher of that well, you know, I don't know their environment or their culture. So it, it's possible they would need something like that. Okay. Uh, you're suggesting it's kind of a blame culture? Well, fear of blame, let me say it fear that Fear of blame, okay. Yeah, because my approach, if I were brought in on that and I was supposed to be coaching this team, mm-hmm. I would kind of guide them to enough to get started with that. And okay. then as we did the first one, we would learn a lot and probably adapt that. By the time we got like to the third one, we'd have it down pretty well. Okay. But I wouldn't be looking for someone to own it individually or to be blamed for it. Okay. And we're going to get some things wrong. Yeah. That's just the it's natural. Well, and I was just more. If we figure somebody, that out as we go and fix it, then it's okay. 
somebody who's going to keep people like me from being just screw it, just drag it over. I don't care. Yeah. I mean, so he, there is, there is in this organization, um, a lot of pressure to meet deadlines. And that mm-hmm. was one of the concerns that came up in class is that you will meet the deadline and it's the old, you know, traditional, like the quality, unfortunately, is the kid that we leave at the truck stop when we drive away. <laughs> yeah, but this is part of the good news. You know, I mentioned that, well, this is yeah. good news. You know, yes. <laughs> some of those points, uh, one of them, oh, well, they have three to four years to do yeah. Now, imagine if this is, and I don't know what the context is. I don't know if this is just a general student in your class or if it's a leading agile client. But if Not it's a leading agile agile. client, we're going to be doing expeditions with them. And yeah. over the course of three years, and they're going to be way beyond waterfall anyway. Yeah. So this is this pressure about deadlines. It's going to be different. And we're going to meet deadlines. We'll be able to meet deadlines, but it's not going to be like a cutthroat thing. Okay. Because you know, in, in three years' time, we make a lot of progress with organizational structure and team structure, breaking dependencies and and reducing batch size and all that usual stuff. That's all going to help this project. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. I want to. I want to switch over to the COBOL topic now because this is an. I mean, that's an area where I am a. I'm. I'm in dangerous water with data farm. When we talk about COBOL, I'm like, I'm out. I got nothing. Okay. So can well, you? It's a programming language, right? Yeah, I know what it is, but I also oh, yeah. know that it's something that my my great aunt did. So, <laughs> Um, can you can you explain a little bit about the complications or, or not complications like what you saw with that when you listened to the recording and and where the the options were? Okay, yeah. From the recording, I gathered that the definitions of the data transformations that they go through are in two different tools. One of them is Ab Initio, and one of them is Cobol. And I would guess that the Cobol implementation is older. Uh, Ab Initio is an ETL tool that has a graphical interface. So they should be able to see what the rules look like for transforming uh, an attribute to be loaded into the data warehouse. Uh, That's just going to be rules that they can look at and and understand. Uh, For the COBOL code, that's doing the same thing. It's just a different tool. Okay. So they could look at the source code and see, well, they take this data element in and here's the way it's formatted and they convert it to this other format. And there's a piece missing. So here's the rules for putting in default values and things like that. Or maybe there's some rules for normalizing data like street addresses. I don't know what the data is, but there's, there's rules like that and there's libraries to do that. It's not that daunting. I think they might be concerned because they're not familiar with these tools. But I think they'll find in both of those cases, the ab initio and the COBOL, it's not that hard to read the code. I mean, they don't have to design new solutions with these tools. They just have to read what's there now. Okay. So that's a lot easier. And, you know, in in COBOL terms, well, I don't need to overload you with this since it's not a language, you know, but there's a COBOL verbs like move. And that's going to be what you see the most, move this to that, which is like a copy. Yeah. It's an assignment statement kind of thing. And then there's going to be conditional logic. And there's a couple of things you'll see. You'll see if else blocks. That's pretty familiar. And you'll see something like a switch statement. It's called evaluate in COBOL. 
So okay. it's not going to look bizarre or anything, just some different keywords. And there's a couple of other special COBOL verbs that they might use for data conversion, like string. And another one is called inspect. Okay. And that's about it. I and mean, mostly it's going to be move statements. So they should be able to read that. So there is an, an amount of archaeology they have to go through with this. I mean, it, I can see where somebody would just, it seems to me like this would be the kind of place where some people would opt to just build everything from scratch because it seems like a pain in the ass to go figure out what someone else did. Yeah, and that's a judgment call. I, I can't make that judgment call just based on that, uh, that recording. Um, yeah, I'd have to see the code and yeah. see the environment to do that. But it's possible that it would make sense to just start over, or it's possible it makes more sense to look at this code and see what it does and do it in the new tool. So the code is your requirements. I mean, from from what you're talking about now, I would look at the COBOL, figure out what it was trying to do, and whatever I'm going to be using now, I'm going to replicate that activity in this new language. Yeah, pretty much. But then the target data stores are different from the source data store. And the reasons for choosing those new data stores, uh, there's probably some business reason for choosing those. And they don't work the same way. So there's some design to do to design the data structures appropriately. Okay. To match the use cases and all that. Because okay. these tools are all three of these tools, the old one and the two new ones, they're for very large data sets. And they can all search and access large quantities of data quickly unless you define the data structures wrong, and then it's going to be really slow. Okay. So they, they all have that characteristic. So somebody knowledgeable has to design that. So you might not actually convert things precisely the same way, but generally the same way. Okay. And you would be trying to make sure that you're getting the same outcome, at least from the data that you're doing. Well, well. you want to make sure that the, ultimately the consumers of the data can get what they need from their queries. Okay. So, you know, I keep moving the, frame of reference out a little bit from the data elements because that's an implementation detail sort of. So can you explain that part? Just say that again, that you're moving. Well, I'm moving my, my frame of reference is what does the consumer of the data need? Right. My frame of reference is, isn't what do I do with this attribute? I got it. Okay. All right. So once I figure out that my customer needs, internal customer in this case, they need this attribute in, to be available in their analysis. Okay, then I can figure out, well, based on the way they pull the data and the kind of analysis they do, does this belong in Hadoop? Does it belong in Teradata? Does it belong in both? And okay. how should it live there? How should it be structured so that it's, it, it's not too slow or unreliable or anything to get it? But if you start with each attribute individually, I don't know how you can see that bigger picture. You're just dumping things over. Yeah. Well, and the way you were just talking about it too, it sounded almost like a parallel to a user story in that we're trying to not just simply say this thing has to do this action, but you know, where are we trying to get to? What, what's going to happen with this stuff? How do we need it to behave? Right, yeah. Okay. Exactly. And, and I think that there will be some of the shadow IT stuff going on. I, I'd be surprised if there wasn't. And I think it's an opportunity to, to simplify some of that 
because a lot of these departments in these bigger companies they spend a lot of time manually moving things around, just working around what's missing from the official applications that they use. And it's because the IT departments have been historically really slow to respond. Yeah. And we're fixing that though, right? With our transformation. So yes, but well, I say yes and. I had a, a project like this one time for an oil and gas company. And one of the things that we learned as we started to migrate all the data was that not only did we have a lot of those like black ops projects going on, but they were integrating with other systems that we were not aware of. And that was causing additional problems. So it was like, not only did we have to move everything, but then we had to and find all the places where it was being, what we had was being consumed that we weren't aware of. But then suddenly we were also on the hook for other people's stuff that we couldn't control because they had built it and it was in use. Yeah, I can see that as a problem. But let's say that hypothetical um, asset management group, yeah. we're working with them. We help them get the queries they need, the data they need. And independently of us, they're feeding some of that data to somebody else. But that's really beyond the, the wall for us. Yeah. Right? That's not our problem. That's not the migration project's problem. That's out of scope. Okay, so now I'm going to see if we can actually break one of the things that I say in class all the time. Okay. One of the things I tell students in every single Scrum class, because I always get, you know, I get a lot of project managers and they all want to know about scope creep. And I say, we don't have scope creep. You can add to that backlog whenever you want. We just might not do it, but you can always add. <laughs> it's, not, yeah. it's not scope creep because we never lock the scope down. But here we're saying we are limiting the scope to this kind of realm that we're working with. But, I mean, in, our, in the case, in my situation, like we, we were just told, like, and you're also going to do this. <laughs> like it wasn't. Right, yeah. Well, what I'm visualizing, maybe it's not the same um, scenario that you're visualizing, but I'm thinking this, this department takes in this data, they do some analysis with it, and somebody else consumes what they do. The somebody else is not consuming anything from the data warehouse. They're consuming the results of what the asset management group does. It was a little bit of that plus a little bit of, okay, I'm, if, you're the, if you've got all the data, I'm taking, consuming stuff from you, and I'm also getting data from some other source, and I'm putting the two together and doing something with that and then providing someone else with the result. But right. now when I take what I've been taking from this third party and I mix it with the new stuff I get from you, it doesn't work anymore. Now, so you're still providing... If that's a... If that's a shadow IT thing? Yeah. And the, where they have figured out a way to merge those two data sources? Yeah. Um, we probably would want to work with them to get that working. Okay. Because that's our, I think the way I see it, our mandate is to get that customer working. Yes. So their interface to their third party that they built, that they're kind of responsible for that. So whatever the new data looks like, they have to make it fit that interface to their third party. Well, this, and what you just said, I think is important to point out too, is that you said it's to get that customer up and running. Mm -hmm. in the recording and in the class, people were kept talking about the eight attributes and things. It was very much like the laundry list of technological changes we have to make. Not so much about business outcome, customer enablement, things like that. Right. 
Yeah, so that's, that's going to be like mindset. That. Yeah, mindset shift that has to occur as well. Yeah, it could be. Yeah, they're they're looking at the data. They're just looking at the technical tasks that they have to do. Yeah, but and and that's one of the reasons I think why it looks so daunting to them because they have hundreds of tables, which is kind of moderate size, really. It's not overwhelming, uh, but they they feel overwhelmed, and they have thousands, maybe around ten thousand attributes right but they're looking at each attribute separately and, and there's no context there's no business context there's no user context it's just a thing but if you look at the, the users uh, you can the things will fall into place yeah oh, this user group oh, they need um, they need attributes from 17 tables okay fine what's that going to look like in Teradata well maybe that looks like 11 tables Okay, so we do the queries for that. We get them their data. And then we've got a vertical slice work. Okay. Well, that's a, a simplified way of saying it. But then we can go to the next department and say, well, what are you guys doing with this? And get them squared away. Yeah. And all the data elements will kind of fall into place if they're needed. And they may find out that well, 3,000 of those attributes are never used. And I'm just... They, they went to the trouble of converting all of them, and they, that would be wasted wasted effort there yeah I, I've, I've been trying to think of a way to hold on to their attribute thing in that you know we're talking about prioritizing based on the user group or whatever we're going to call it mm -hmm. um, if they were going to do eight attributes at a time then whoever is the technical product owner whoever's the product owner of this backlog of attributes would have to have a way of quantifying the relative value of each attribute and each group of attributes because you don't want to, you can't just release one thing by itself. Sure, they would, and, and I don't see how they could. Yeah, that's that's that kind of where sense. I was going to. It just doesn't. What, make if, the, what if you have a, a query that you're trying to convert all the data that goes into this query, and it requires nine attributes, and you've locked yourself into this pattern of eights? What's the value of that? <laughs> There's a thing in the back of my head going, extend the sprint. <laughs> well, well, that's <laughs> add more right. people. You're right. And that's why a continuous flow model instead of a time box model would fit this because they may find that the first query that they want to get running off of the new data store, it takes five weeks for them to yeah. do that. And the next one, it takes them three hours. And the next one takes two days. You know, they're not all going to fit like user stories in a, in a reasonable reasonably same size chunks they're going to be whatever they are if we want to provide a vertical slice for a real customer it's got to be whatever it is yeah do you think it would be worth estimating this work somehow or is that just stupid because we're just going to do them one after the other anyway we'll just keep going and shipping them out as we go you know rather than estimating it you might want to ask the uh the bank's leadership or whoever is responsible for it, how much they want to spend for it. Can you say more about that? Yes. If they say, well, the business value of doing this conversion is we're willing to spend, I don't know, I'm going to throw a number out there, like $20 million. Okay. And if it's going to go more than $20 million, we really have to have a serious talk because it might not be worth it. Okay. So that combine that with the, approach of identifying which customers are most valuable to the bank. Okay. So now you've got this the theoretical maximum amount of money to spend. 
Yeah. You know who your most important customer is, get them done, get the next one done, and just keep going. And if you run out of money, or it looks like you're going to run out of money, you got to have that conversation. And it's up to the client leadership then, is it worth doing the rest of them or not? Okay. Okay. That's really their call. It's not a reason for the technical team to feel stress. It's just a business call. Okay. I can see where they might feel stress anyway, but I guess that to me falls more into the hangover of the old way of working. Sure. And, you know, stress is always optional if people enjoy that. <laughs> um, do you think that – I'm about I'm almost out of questions, but I, I have one for you. Do you think that – does the size of this matter to you? I mean, when I hear people talk about projects and they're like, oh, is this many dollars or, oh, is this many whatever, I – I kind of have a crooked eye for looking at that stuff. I worked with it when I was in graduate school. Um, I was talking to this other guy. We were both getting our master's degree in project management. And I was talking about the website project plans that I had, which were like hundreds of lines long. And I'm sitting next to a guy whose job is to manage the development of ocean liners. And his project schedules are 12 lines long. So, <laughs> I mean, every, in every possible dimension, what he was dealing with was way bigger than what I was dealing with, but my stuff was so much more detailed. I think size to me is just kind of like whatever. But does it, do you look at it that way or not? Uh, not I kind of look at it the way you do, I think. Okay. Because in this case, yeah, there's a lot of attributes, but in any given bank does a few things, like I said before, right? They may do yeah. commercial banking, consumer banking, lending, uh, asset management. They might do financial advice. They might have credit cards. But the list is not a thousand items long. Yeah. It's like six, seven, eight. And those are the vertical slices. Yeah. And so there may be 10,000 attributes involved in supporting those, but there's not really 10,000 distinct requirements there. Okay. Uh, maybe each group, have, maybe on average, they're, they're using 10 queries or something. And they've got, let's say, 10 groups. So that's 100. Yeah. That's not 10,000. It's just 100. Okay. Do you have any parting words of advice for these folks? Or is there anything that we didn't talk about? Anything in Because I think we hit on all the stuff that you mentioned in the prep work. But is there anything that I missed or any advice that you have for them? Well, uh, other than why are you using two databases? Well, that's a, yeah, and that's a legitimate question. That's not a snarky question because they, they may have a, examined the capabilities of these two products and determined that they could use both of them. Yeah. But I don't know what their rationale was because, you know, there's just that recording. That's the only information I have. Yep. So that, that would be an interesting question to ask. And of course, during this whole transition time, they're going to have the old database still there. So they're going to have to coordinate that and keep everything in sync. Yeah. And that'll be a technical challenge, but that's got to be done. And then ultimately they can turn that off unless they use up their 20 million and the executives say, I don't want to spend any more on this because then what they've got is some of the lower value queries and things are still running off the old database. Right. So they've got three databases now. And from what I've seen of this kind of a project in big companies, that's pretty likely. That yeah. They don't get rid of the old stuff. They just layer the new stuff on top. Well, or that the old one sits around for a really long time and then they, somebody comes along and just decides we're turning it off. Yeah, could, that could happen. Yeah. 
all kinds of things could happen. We, we can't really predict precisely what will happen four years from now, right? This was great. D Dave, thank you very much for doing this. Well, I'm, I'm glad to do it. I hope it was helpful. I'm sure it was. It was helpful for me, and I barely understand it. I'm sure it's going to be really helpful for them. Um, what if folks want to get in touch with you? What's the best way to do that? Well, we have our contact info on the website, don't we? Yep, yep. and I'm going to include your yours with the show notes for the podcast. Okay, that should work. Cool. All right, thanks a lot for doing this. You bet. 